who said like 3.1 million people are talking about this. And I scrolled through the comments and it was like almost exclusively people shaming me. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. You're listening to Hawk Talk with Eric Huberman. We're here with Dan Price of Gravity Payments. How you doing? Hey, Eric. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for being on, man. Thanks for having me. I think we owe your audience a full disclosure, which is that Eric and I are pretty good buddies. So I don't know yeah. if that would always be the case with your podcast, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> it's definitely needed to be. Yeah, we had some fun times in Vegas as you sent me the picture last night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I missed that. I missed that. I can't wait to see you in person again. Same, man. Yeah. So just to dive right in, you know, you've obviously, you've become basically the icon of being an altruistic, you know, good CEO, a good CEO to your people, a good executive, building a business where you can be successful, but it's not at the sacrifice of your people. And you're, you've become that spokesperson. So I'm just going to assume that as a three or four-year-old, you weren't standing on a podium in your backyard, deciding that the 1% needs to be taken down and we need to adjust how people are paid. So I'd love to know, like, where did it start? Tell me about the childhood side. Yeah, well, I should talk about my family because I have three older brothers and two younger siblings and I have two parents, but I'm the fourth of six kids. I was originally born in Michigan, but when I was a little kid, we moved to Idaho. So I grew up in rural Idaho, the fourth of six kids in a homeschooling, conservative Christian, anti-vaccine family. So I just got vaccinated for the first time in my life when I was 27, I think. So real quick on that, because funny enough, I was vaccinated as a little kid, then my mom became anti-vax. And so my sister and brother weren't, and like, I didn't get all my vaccines and made the same decision where, you know, originally it was a lot of autism concern, but I went to India at 17. My mom homeopathically immunized me for hepatitis A, B, et cetera. And I came back and I was like, "I, I don't think anyone at 18 has ever become autistic. So what was the reason for not wanting to give me vaccines at that point? So like, what was that? And I want to know what went into that decision. I have no idea. I think my parents are just so distrustful of the establishment. Yeah. That is just like, they just assume things are propaganda for like politics or corporations or something. And I'm just trying to kind of paint a picture of like, you know, we grew up and we used to wake up at five or 6 a.m. and read the Bible out loud for an hour every day. We were a homeschooled family. Like we were kind of forbidden from like learning about biology, for example, because it didn't necessarily go along with our ideology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was kind of the background. But, you know, I was so bored as a kid because we were out in the middle of nowhere and I was homeschooled that I would start little like businesses or like go around like hustling for work. Literally things like, oh, can I shovel your driveway? Or like I would sell stationery to like these rule like people where I'd like have to bike like a mile door to door and like they'd never had a salesperson come to them and now there's the eight-year-old kid salesperson selling them stationery so they tend to say yes but I think I probably started maybe like 15 or 20 businesses before I turned like 12. And what what were some of the other ones? So you've got stationery, you've got like Worm Farm. I'm sure we all did that one, right? Yeah. Uh, like, what else? Did you ever do lemonade? Because it sounds like you had no people driving I did, by. I did yeah. lemonade, yeah, but no customers. Yeah. Uh, it was just like, I read that was a good business for kids to start. And yeah. so I did it anyway, even though like it was hopeless and kind of yeah. crazy. But probably um, sincerely a great lesson, even for a young kid to be like, oh yeah, you need traffic. 
Yeah. And then baseball, like trading cards where you could like take your like family members and basically like turn them into baseball cards. So like (laughs) just basically like anything I could think of and probably even more that I've forgotten. But were your parents super supportive of all these? Were like they encouraging it? Like oh yeah. So my parents didn't have college degrees. And so they had to work really hard. They started having kids at like 19 and 21 or 20 and 22. So they were really young, no college degrees. And they, you know, having six kids basically back to back at that age, they worked like crazy. And so they were really pro the idea of entrepreneurship. Uh-huh. And because my dad worked at a, a company actually similar size to Gravity Payments and worked his way up, he was all about like self-education and kind of entrepreneurship dovetailed with that. And so I don't know that we ever called it that, but like he was all about like, you know, getting things done and making things happen. And I think, frankly, just out of necessity, given, you know, the situation they put themselves in. But a big turning point for me was when I turned 12, I got to go to school. And I went to like a small Christian school. So it was like parent approved. It was the best I could do. And I found that I didn't really fit in like all the different things, like wearing the right shoes, wearing the right shirt. Like I didn't know any of that stuff, like how to talk, how to act. And I still think a lot of like my weirdness today and like sometimes I get misinterpreted because I'm kind of hardcore. I still think like a lot of that just comes from like the fact that I wasn't socialized until like 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. And I'm wondering like how many things like most kids out there learn being socialized at five or six years old that like I just never learned. So, you know, I try to be humble knowing that. But to get back to the story, I was in a tough situation because I went to school feeling lonely. And then I basically was like, you know, the guy that people made fun of. And that was tough. And I remember one specific instance where like my buddy was like, hey, see how your shoes are like hand me down like track shoes and our shoes are like skater shoes. Like if you want to hang out with our group, you need to get some skater shoes. So I saved up, saved up and they had two for one at Payless. So I got like two pairs of shoes at Payless and I came to school and they all made fun of me. And I was like, my shoes look just like yours. And he said, yeah, but ours say Vans on the side. And I just like have, I like that the idea of like a brand like yeah. a brand name was just not really something I knew about. Yeah. But I had a, a ma- massive stroke of luck where I grew up playing a little bit of piano. I wasn't great. But two of my friends were musicians or people that I wanted to be friends with. Yeah. And they were like, hey, you know, if you can like pick up how to play bass, we could start a band together because we need a bass player for our band. And by the end of that seventh grade year, you know, when we were 12 or 13, we played our first show for... And we had like 250, 300 people come out, including our favorite local rock band. And we played all original songs and our favorite local rock band loved us. So they said, you can start opening for us and go on tour. So we started doing these little mini regional tours around like small towns in Idaho. We were like 13 years old. And it it just built like crazy. We recorded a demo, then we got more shows, then we started sending it to like friends and family. And it really kind of blew up, you know, this is like pre YouTube, pre like Facebook, pre all of that. And so it was literally like sending a CD to somebody was how you would get the word out. Yeah. And like pictures and things like that. And so we just kept building momentum and just to go through some highlights quickly, like we ended up being played on some independent like radio stations nationwide. We ended up touring and playing, I don't know, probably a couple hundred shows. Our largest show, we had a crowd of 5,000 people, and we had maybe about 1,000 people singing along to our songs. 
we had a little bit of play, not a ton on kind of like the local, like mainstream radio stations. And it was a phenomenal experience, but we had kind of a rough tour when we were 16 and we ended up deciding to break up because we weren't having fun. We weren't getting along. We didn't have a good vibe. Yeah. And right around that time, I had met this woman, Heather Hempel, who had a coffee shop in Caldwell, Idaho called Moxie Java. Mm -hmm. And Heather was complaining to me about how her credit card processing was so unfair, how like the fees were way too high and they were hidden and the service sucked. And it was like, it just seemed like there was nothing good about it. So I decided to jump in and help Heather renegotiate like her rates and like get set up with a, a better provider. And it was just literally like, imagine like when you call Comcast because they raise your rates and you call and yell at them yeah. and they I dealt with it last night. <laughs> yeah. So I, I literally was just doing that. And Heather was like, oh, that was great. You should do it for my friend now. And so I started doing it. And then I remember my first ever cold call. I walked into this business like maybe a couple months later greenhouse nursery that was like a plant store like by where we live for like farmers and stuff and the guy kicked me out yeah um, and said you know get out of here but then I called on another place and it was the first cold call I ever had where the guy was like oh yeah I'll meet with you and he ended up like deciding to like hire me to help him do that and so I was like wow I can just go to total strangers now yeah ask them to do business with me. And keep in mind, I was a junior in high school at the time. So like, I was really trying to figure out like, how do, how do I break through the barrier of like credibility as a junior yeah. in high school? I wore a suit and tie every day. And I oftentimes had to go to class in a suit and tie because like this, the way the schedule worked out, like I didn't have time to change. So kids thought it was weird, but they didn't really ask me about it. I didn't talk about it. And then when I moved to Seattle, it was like, there wasn't a whole lot going on in the Boise area. And I felt like I needed to be in a city with more economic activity. And I moved to Seattle and it just seemed like I just couldn't keep up with like all of like the horrible things that credit card processors do. You know, they really consider themselves to be a monopoly and they think that it's their right to change the prices and fees on any merchant anytime they want to. And that includes, you know, people like Stripe and Square, but also legacy players like FIS, WorldPay, Fiserv First Data, all the big banks, they all have the same approach. And they're all in different phases of the cycle. When they're building, they're a little nicer. And then once they get to a point where they have like an established customer base, they're really bad. And it's just such a compelling value proposition for the executives and the investors to do that, that I wanted to build a company that did it the opposite of that. And I didn't really care that much if it made money at that time. I didn't really think, I didn't know that much about business. So I launched kind of officially with my own product my freshman year of college after having all that experience, having the money I made, using that to like build the product. Where are you going to school? I had a music scholarship at Seattle Pacific University. Nice. Uh, I took a couple business classes just to like help me out and whatnot. And then the business school found out about my business and they gave me a ton of extra credit just for like having my business. Oh, very cool. But I, I was a music major. Nice. So I built my business throughout school. And I think by the time I graduated college, I probably had about 35 or 40 employees. Wow. Um, to take a step back with that, like how many different businesses do you think you worked with when you were still in Idaho, like going around just helping consulting basically? 200-ish. So you during from junior and senior year of high school, you were able to cold call and recruit and get 200 clients to work with you on that. And then you 
got into school and decided you wanted to move to Seattle. And so how soon was it right away that you launched your own product? Like it was freshman year in the beginning kind of thing? It was like after the first quarter of freshman year. Cool. I started to realize I needed to shift in that direction pretty hard, like well before that, but it took a while to get things set up. And yeah, so what did you have to do to do that? Was it just like figure out the kind of roles around having your own merchant processor and setting up a business or what was the kind of barrier? Yeah. And then I needed to get like some technology products lined up. And my approach was like, you know, we build like what we absolutely have to, but we would try to borrow from other companies and other solutions out there. And then, you know, backfill when we could to get those other solutions kind of engineered out over the long term. And so I also needed to convince a sponsor bank that's like in the Visa MasterCard club to like sponsor me, which was hard for like a 19 year old with nothing. But I found somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And I think I kind of like slipped like under the radar a little bit. Nice. They just found the right person that you just kind of made it casual and it worked out kind of thing. And yeah, somebody like vouched for me to somebody who vouched for me to somebody who vouched for me. Yeah. And like the three people at the top level of that had no idea who I was, but they just knew the person that was like vouching yeah. up one level. And then like, they also just didn't care that much because they had other things to worry about. So they're like, oh, this person says I should do it. So I'll do it. Yeah, got it. But yeah, and I've seen that happen a lot in business. It's perfect. Like, it's like, I don't care you don't have to worry about me at all. Just let me through. We're good. And you raised no money for this, right? You bootstrap this? Yeah, in Idaho, that wasn't really a thing. So like entrepreneur, venture capital, especially, I mean, now it is maybe somewhat, but in, you know, this was, I started building what became Gravity in 2001 and then launched Gravity end of 2003, early 2004. Yeah. And so it just, those terms just didn't exist. And I, I had no conception of what those things were. Nice. And so, yeah, so you're a freshman, you launched this new product kind of what you're used to selling, it sounds like at this point, you, if you've closed 200 deals, I can imagine you pitched a lot more. So what's next? Well, you know, the next thing was like kind of hiring that first employee. Mm-hmm. We had a couple like friends and family like help out like a couple of my brothers and even my sister and mom helped me out with a few things and like, but eventually it's like, okay, we need to hire a, like a long-term employee. And I just, I took it very seriously. So our first employee who's still at the company, first long-term employee, David Meisner, he tells the story better than I do, but like he said that he just saw like a sketchy Craigslist ad and he decided to just take a flyer and he thought he was going to be, he was already going to be like in the neighborhood where we were. So he's like, I'll do a quick interview. I'll be in and out in 20 minutes. And he said, we grilled him for like three or four hours or something like that, which he had never seen. And then we asked him to do like a follow-up interview and a follow-up interview and It was, yeah, it was, he said it was a little strange, but as soon as we offered him the job, he was like, I'll take it. And then that was pretty crazy because he would like basically handle so many of like the background details for me that I all of a sudden had like, like an incredible leverage on my time. And like, he was somebody who's pretty independent. And so he could just like watch me do things and I didn't really need to take a lot of time to train him. And then he could just kind of do it. And so after that, I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool, like working with other people and like having more people around. I should say I started the company originally with my brother. Mm -hmm. And so he was a few years older and he was there. When I say we, I'm talking about me and and Lucas. Got it. Nice. Yeah. I have the same experience with my business partner. It was like, you know, I had been consulting and was really ready to build this company. But I was like, I knew my business partner. We had been partners on another prior business, but it didn't really overlap much in working on it. Longer story, but... Once we got started working on this, it was exactly that. Like the moment he came on board, I was like, wait, 
everything's kind of handled. Like I can focus on growing this thing. And it's really how we took off was having that balance. I did not interview him for four hours at several times though. That maybe would, would have been a fun thing to do. And, and I so yeah, so you, you hired him and then like, you, as you said, like how quickly did you progress through hiring? You said a team of 30 or 40 a couple of years later, right? Yeah, the way it would work was we would get to about two to $3,000 in monthly profit. Yeah. But just by like, you know, hustling hard. And that would usually take like, you know, several months. Yeah. And then we'd hire somebody to go to zero. Yeah. And then we would just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And that was, yeah, that was how we did it. It was literally like, okay, if we add, you know, that would probably be like for in our world, that's like 30 clients or 40 clients. So we'd add like 30 or 40 clients and we'd hire another person. And if uh -huh. it took us a month or six months or anything in between, basically yeah. that's what it took to allow us to hire another person. Makes sense. And so, yeah, keep me going. Like when you got, you got through college and you're doing this while going to school, did you end up finishing school or did you drop out at some point? I finished school. I did five years halftime, including in the summer. Wow. Okay. So it was, it. it was, yeah, tough, but it made me really appreciate when it was over. Yeah. And do you still play music? I do, but I, I've been away from it for a little bit. And it's, you know, something like that, that takes some skill. It can be a little bit discouraging to jump back in. And so I don't really jump back in a ton because it's like, oh shoot, like I'm so like bad now. <laughs> kind of let it let it go I, I play guitar since i'm four years old but as a hobby i've never been that good but it's still fun to just screw around sometimes it yeah. does get frustrating when you go to play a song you used to play like you know with your eye literally with your eyes closed and now you're like shit how do i do this again yeah and so you built out the team you got out of college give me the, the playbook what happened next yeah so the first like thing that was like a big eye-opener after that was in 2006 so I'm like two or three years into my business. One of my professors was like, hey, it'd be great for our school and for our program if you did the University of Washington business plan competition. It's open to anybody. You don't have to be a UW student. And if you do it, we'll give you 15 credits, which is like basically like a full quarter of credits if you win it or go to the final round. Wow. So I did, I did it and he was like, you can just like submit everything that you already have. Like he's like, you just have to reformat it, like meet the competition like guidelines. Yep. So I was like, okay, 15 credits, that's worth it. So I ended up doing that and getting second and getting a lot of attention from venture capitalists and people uh -huh. like that, because it's like basically the competition sponsored by venture capitalists and like the startup community. Yep. And that was the first time that I didn't like feel like, oh, people are kind of shaming me for having a business. Yeah. People, in it. Yeah. People actually seem to enjoy it. And so so we, we were kind of like all of a sudden had like interest from venture capitalists and we still had no money, zero money. And uh, the, the largest, most important venture capitalist in Seattle is called Madrona and their top person is this guy, Matt McElwain. And so one of the people from the competition was like, hey, let me get you an introduction and a meeting directly with Matt McElwain. Guy could write you, you know, a $3 million check for 15, 20% of your company. That's kind of what he does. So I was like, oh, okay, sounds good. I'll get the meeting. But the, the, the night before I stayed up all night, like trying to figure out what venture capitalists do and like what the terms and conditions meant and all this like legally stuff. Cause I couldn't afford a lawyer, you know? Yeah. And I learned about preferred stock and I kind of thought about like the long term, if they have like certain rights in the stock, like forcing you to sell or vetoing certain decisions, they could really like basically force you to cash them out with another investor. Yep. 
or going public or something. And I thought, wow, I, you really get onto a rat race where like your values and our whole company was based on, we were going to be different than everybody else. Yep. And like in that world, it was like the, the level of conformity that's required is just like way over the top. Yep. And so I, I really struggled with it, but I ended up just- You were in that, just to be clear, you were in that in an evening, staying up all night reading about VC. You're like, oh, wow, this is not, this is going to force me into a sort of cookie cutter way of doing yeah. things that I don't want to have to do. This is before the HBO series, Silicon Valley. That would yeah. have made it easier. I could have just watched that. But in this case, I, it was mostly Wikipedia and like references from Wikipedia is how okay. I figured wow. it out. So I just decided to just go for it and going strong. And I was probably a bit stubborn at the time and, and maybe a little dangerous in that way. But I just told them, I was like, Matt, really appreciate it. It's awesome, really great, but I'm only gonna do common stock because we're different. And I don't really think you all should do it. I don't think we're aligned, but if you wanna do it, this is the only way I'm gonna do it. And he was like, well, let me check with my partners. He's like, I, I think I think we should do it, but we've never done anything like that before. And he's like, arguably, like our agreement with our limited partners doesn't even allow us to do that. But let me check and like, why don't you come to our partner meeting and pitch? And so I walked in the partner meeting and this guy, Paul Goodrich was like, Matt, like we literally don't do that. We can't do it like right in front of me. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't really say much. I just like listened to their discussion and like, I don't know if they were like embarrassed or kind of like felt weird, but it was a very short meeting. Yeah. And you know, it's their, like whatever their monthly partner meeting where they yeah. make all their final decisions. So yeah. I'm sure they had other people to see, but it was an incredibly short meeting. And kind of that was that. I did run into Paul in an elevator maybe like a couple of years ago. So this would have been like 10, 15 years later. Yep. And he was like, we, we, we thought we should have done it afterwards. He's like, I wish we would have done it. We did it with one other company after you because you kind of paved the way for them. But I felt like that was kind of like a really important moment for us to like evade that temptation because we had so much stress and so many financial problems it yeah. was a really difficult thing to turn down, you know, two or $3 million when you yeah. have like $20,000 in your bank account. And yep. no bootstrapping. I mean, we did the same thing and I've definitely been to the point where like I'm watching the wire come from our, which you'd be doing with, with from the merchant processors. I'm watching the wire come from our like accounting system while I'm watching the wire go out for payroll and going, I think the timing is going to work that we're going to make that work. And like, we've never missed a payroll, but there's definitely been times where it's like that day is the day we made payroll. I'm sure yeah. you have the same thing. Yeah, we have that all the time. I mean, I had to take out multiple student loans yeah. to make payroll. Yeah. No, and there's been, we've come close. I mean, I thankfully, you might know Cameron Harold, but I got advice, great advice from him really in my business. I like he's him. Like, yeah, he's awesome. And he got his business to $100 million in revenue. And when he hit that number, they had to take a $250,000 loan from his, or his partner's mother to actually make payroll because no bank was going to lend to them on the last minute when they had no cash. Banks, notorious line that my dad's told me over and over again, too, works with a lot of banks. They'll give you money until you need it. <laughs> so, you know, when he needed it, he had to ask, literally ask his CEO's mother to lend them 250 grand, which thankfully he had a, you know, a CEO's mother that could give them that. But again, $100 million business, seeing that it really stuck with me. So I immediately got a line of credit once I heard that story and just have always kept a, as big of a line of credit as I can with the bank. I've never used it, but I've always had it. 
Yeah, it's a good idea to like have plenty of plenty of cash whenever yep. possible. And I yep, think hundred percent. Just always to backstop just in case. Because again, yeah. bootstrapping, you usually you can get thin at time because you're doing a lot of times you're doing kind of what you said. You're getting to three grand in profit and then yeah. spending it. <laughs> well, so keep in mind this was like two thousand seven. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm really happy right now. Even though it's stressful, I'm really happy in life. And we're not making any money really, you know, we're, we're growing at the pace we're growing, but like we're doing, we're doing exactly what we set out to do. And, and specifically I'm doing what I set out to do. And I thought that could just go forever. I was kind of naive. And uh, then 2008 hit and we lost in what felt like overnight 20% of our revenue. Yeah. And we went from kind of eking out like a single digit, like profit margin where we were just like barely like adding to our savings, mm-hmm. barely breaking even and a little better to like losing a, a, a huge amount of money every month. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I just calculated where we were at and like how much money we had. And we had seven months, even like maxing out every line of credit, every credit card before we would just like not be able to make payroll anymore. Yeah. Like in the best of circumstances. And so I was like, okay, well, what you're supposed to do in this situation is layoffs. And I had just joined this group that you're familiar with, Entrepreneurs Organization. Yep. I joined right after I graduated from college or as I was about to. And I was like, oh, this will be my next chapter of like education. And the first thing I went to was a class on how to do layoffs. And they said something that we all learn, which is you want to lay off deeper than you think, because what hurts people is multiple rounds of layoffs. If you do one big layoff, and actually, if you overshoot, it's kind of a good thing, because the sooner you can get to back to hiring and growth, the yeah. more secure people will feel, versus if you lay off just the bare minimum, then you might have to lay off more, and you won't be able to hire for a long time, and the people left will basically jump ship because they'll be waiting for the next shoe to drop all the time. Right. Yep. And so I was like, oh, wow, like that kind of makes sense, and that seems super evil and messed up. Yeah. And because like, you, like I'm going to lay this person off that I don't actually need to. And it, it benefits me psychologically with my other employees and arguably benefits them to like basically cut somebody out that you don't need to. And that was so upsetting to me that I, I went in front of my entire team and I was like, hey, the two ways out of this that everyone else in our industry is doing both. Number one, they added fees to the merchants to the small businesses. That's the exact opposite of everything we stand for. And then number two, this layoff thing, at that time, we weren't an employee-centered company at all. You know, we were 100% all about small businesses, but it just seemed like wrong and kind of counterintuitive and stupid. So although- This is because it goes core to, you know, kind of the end of this discussion, but where do you think that came from for you? Like that moral compass that you think it was the Bible studies? Do you think it was your parents? Like- I mean, I want to give credit to my parents and all that. And like, they did a great job, but I don't think it's really that. I think I get too much credit. I don't think I have much of a moral compass beyond like what a regular person has, because I think if you told like a a five or six or seven year old that set of facts and said to them, what what should we do? I don't think they would pick the layoffs. I really don't. And I agree with you. And like we, the same thing happened with COVID. We tried not to lay off. We didn't lay off anyone but it's and i think that there's a way to do it but most people don't do most people do go to the layoffs most people do take that road what so what do you think kind of made you not do that what do you think about your background your upbringing your story that had you be different because you are different and it's okay to be modest but at the same time the common strategy there is cut deep as you said 
Yeah, I don't think I'm being modest. I just think that the people that do that strategy like are like really bad leaders and kind of like maybe like charlatans or something for lack of a better word. I don't think it's short-sighted. I think you, there, there's something to be, you said it about like 2007 where you're like, I could do this for a long time. I like what I do. It's similar to me. Like I don't plan on selling my company anytime soon. If you're trying to maximize profitability and growth for five years, you can burn a lot of people along the way and get there. But if you think you're going to be doing it for 30, 40, 50, I think it's a different mindset where it's like, well, no, like my favorite example of this is PwC didn't weigh in when it went off in the Great Recession. They're known for that. And now they're known for it. So when things are tough and they need to recruit people, people go to PwC over their competitors because they know that that isn't really a part of their game plan. And yeah. so I think there is a longer term benefit to it too that does benefit you, but it also in an altruistic way as well. Like you can benefit your people and benefit your business too. I got hired by Grant Thornton and they paid me like way too much money to come speak to all their partners or whatever. And like all their like senior people is like thousands of people. And I didn't know what to talk about. And people had told me this was a good story. So I told them about this layoff story. And one of the partners came up to me afterwards and was like, hey, last week we voted to lay off like 15% of our employees so that we could get a slightly higher bonus. <sighs> Which, and that's happening all over the... Oh, yeah. the the world in the United States right now is that exact set of scenario, which is like, you can get this bonus with this many layoffs or zero layoffs, or you can get way, you know, way more like, like whatever, like, yeah. yeah. So yeah, no, it's, it definitely, and that's, that is, you, you've spoken a lot about it, but the problem with driving for profitability being the only factor yeah. is it, there's a lot of issue with that part of capitalism. There's a lot yeah. of benefits to capitalism, but there, there are drawbacks too. Yeah, so I'm really not trying to be falsely modest, but just to kind of like keep things yeah. moving along. Like I really do think it's like pretty basic. And I think that when we try to make it sophisticated or like interesting or businessy, yeah. I think it plays into the hands of the people doing things the other way a little bit. And I, I really think it's just as simple as like, that's a terrible thing to do. And you don't have to have like a great moral compass, in my opinion, to know that. But maybe good enough, you know, so I'll give my parents and the way I was raised or, you know, or even more so probably the people that I worked with and my small business customers, you know, some credit on that. But then the next big thing. So we're so on what the, happened with that conversation. So you told yeah, we're on this cliffhanger and I just I just laid out for the employees and they just start working like crazy. We all start working like crazy. I mean, I myself after work every day went around like selling to restaurants and we became the top credit card processor in Seattle for restaurants because I literally would like call ahead, figure out when the owner was going to be there. They were all in their stores because the recession. So they had like, you know, kind of not rehired middle managers when they left and things like that. So the, the owners were always there and they were like, didn't have much to do. So like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe not so much Thursday, but then I'd stay away on the weekends. Yeah. I would basically spend my entire evening just like, cold calling restaurants. Yeah. It became like a, a, a really big thing for us. And we ended up climbing out of it and getting back to break even four months later. So wow. like, you know, three months ahead of time in terms of going under. And then we grew from there. And then I was like kind of proud of what we did. And I think I had probably some ego growth that happened in a negative way. And, uh, and I was also really scared that it was going to happen again and we wouldn't be able to come out of it. So I got really conservative financially after that. Yep. And so 2009, 2010, 2011, we started to, for the first time in company history, have like profit margins that were maybe like a third of industry standard or half yep. of industry standard, not an industry standard, but like a third or half. Still making good money. 
Yeah. So we were making money and I was so scared. I was just socking it all away. And then, you know, there was an employee named Rosita Barlow who still works at Gravity also. And I fa- I remembered this story. I, I found out that she had, she accidentally left a McDonald's training manual out. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And she thought she was going to get fired. So I called her into my office and she thought she was going to get fired for like moonlighting for having two jobs. And I was more like, whoa, what's going on? Like, and she's like, well, you know, I turned down a job that paid me twice as much to work here and I love it here. But in order to afford to work here, I also have to work at McDonald's all night. And that was, and she was like, maybe like our most valuable employee, definitely up there. Like, I don't want to compare because I don't like comparisons, but but a really good employee. But she was like integral to everything we were doing. Yeah. And it was like, how is this possible? And so I, I saw that and I, I saw a few other stories and heard from people. And it was like, oh my goodness, we have to do something about this. And so we, end of 2011, set a goal. And I have a, a video of it yeah. where I announced it to the company. End of 2011, I said, we need to make employee pay like our top priority, like fixing this. This is, this is our biggest weakness. It's not our biggest area of focus, mm-hmm. but it's the biggest thing that we're doing poorly and so we did a, a $1 pay raise that didn't get the publicity of the 70K, you know, several years later. But we set a goal to average 15% pay raises in the next year to quote unquote fix it. Uh-huh. And the goal was to redistribute the profits and to make the company less profitable. But the employees responded so well to it that the company actually became more profitable. Yep. And so I thought it was going to be a one-time thing. And I was like, okay, we'll try it just one more time. But I didn't want to build up this expectation that was going to lead right. us fail again. Right. So just one more time, same thing happened in 2013. And then we just like kind of cemented it into our ethos. So basically 2012, 13, 14, and the first half of 2015, pre-70K, we were averaging like a 17% annual raise for employees, which means people that were there over that span on average doubled their pay. Yep. And we got really high marks for pay from our employees. Our employees like felt like they got it. And it worked well for them. And they felt like it was like a nice trajectory. And what that people would say is like, yeah, you might start, you know, kind of like where you'd start other places at Gravity, but you're going to advance and you're going to be giving opportunities to add more value. And then when you add more value, you know, you might not get paid fully for that, but you'll get paid some percentage of it. And so you'll do better than if you were somebody somewhere else, especially if you want to work with intrinsic motivation, if you care about small businesses, doing anything you can to like create fairness for the little guy, yeah. you know, this is the place to be. And we got something like, I want to say like a 96% approval rating for our pay on like a broad survey that one of our employees put together. But you do with those 4%, you find out who they were. No. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I was kind of also thinking like, oh, if everyone else is getting pay raises, I should get pay raises too. So my pay was ratcheting up really fast. And to be fair to me, like I was being greedy and scared and egotistical, but to be fair to me, I was saving 100% of it or pretty mm-hmm. close to it. And just like thinking of like the next rainy day when I'm have to all put it back into the company. Right. And that happened a couple of times since. So like there was reason to think of that. Yep. But in 2015, I, I was on a hike with my friend Valerie. Her and I had dated for a while and I had a great time and I really lo- loved her. And, you know, there was like a few things that was off about our relationship where we just decided to be friends. So we became really good friends. And I always wondered how much of it had to do with money because here I was like making a million dollars a year in my mid-20s, becoming a millionaire, 
And my friend, you know, who was making $40,000 a year was struggling to make ends meet. And I just assumed that she was just not good with money. Cause I remember when I made $40,000 a year, I was fine. So I was yeah. like, Oh, let's just go through your expenses. Most people aren't good with money. And you know, she hadn't been perfect, but she was actually doing a really good job, you know, on average. And so I knew all that and, sh- and, and I was frustrated by it, but I didn't have this tipping point. The tipping point happened on a hike that we went on one day where she told me about how her rent was going up by $200 because she had just figured it all out yeah. and just like threw the whole apple cart back on the floor. Yeah. And I was just so pissed and so angry and frustrated at her boss, at the system everything. I was like really emotional, angry. I'm not an angry person. I rarely get angry, but I was just frustrated. You know, this is so unfair. This is so wrong. And then I realized that a third of the people working at my company, Gravity Payments, were making less than what Valerie was making. And that, that on that hike was the tipping point. And this might sound weird, but I told Valerie on the hike, I was like, we talked about like what income level would be necessary. And I had read like Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, like their happiness study. I thought it was 70,000 a year, but it was actually 75, but I misremembered it. And then she kind of came up with the same number when she was talking through things to just like have money, not be an issue and just be able to focus on your life and like your, your friends and family relationships, work, all the things that are important. Yep. So I was like, all right, well, I'll probably have to scale it up. But I promised her right on that hike, you know, just as a friend, like that she inspired me to implement the $70,000 minimum wage. And I think I announced it maybe three or four weeks later. Wow. And how did you do it right away? Did you get like that announcement? Everybody immediately got a bump to 70 grand. So I'm trying to remember, I think it was everyone went to 50 minimum immediately. And then we said we'd phase it in over the next two years. Uh Uh-huh. And so it was like two and a half years to phase it up to 70. And I I think it was like, I think the math works out on that to be like two more $10,000 raises or three $7,000 raises or something like that. Yep. Nice. And so what year was that when you actually opened up? Was that 15? 2015. Yeah. And I I even remember that. That was before we knew each other, but I remember all the press that came out around it. So it was uh, wild, man. Yeah. And so... You, you got attacked for it in a lot of ways in, in the beginning, right? So how did that, like, did yeah. you expect that? Like, did you think you were going to end up being this icon on both sides of the sort of aisle, the political side of things of like, you're a socialist and blah, 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 blah. Well, my grandma, my mom, and my dad all started calling me at the same time and I wasn't answering. And I was like, oh no, it must be a family emergency. So I stepped out of my meeting and I answered and they're like, hey, Rush Limbaugh is about to do a monologue on you. You should turn it on. It's like a dream come true because we grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh and idolizing him and thinking that if Rush Limbaugh were in control of the universe, like the world would be such a a great place. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, hey, this guy is a socialist. I know he's going to fail spectacularly, and I'm glad about it. I hope he fails, and I hope it's a case study in MBA programs for how socialism does not work because it's going to fail. And then a Fox News guy, I can't remember which guy, but it was like a pretty famous guy at Fox News came out and said that I would turn myself into a socialist you know, liberal celebrity, and all my employees would quote unquote be on the bread line. So that was pretty weird. And then there were a whole bunch of people on Fox. And then, and then it, it started to kind of spread. And at one point, there were 3 million people on Facebook making fun of me or calling me stupid or terrible. At was the it like same. a group? How do you know where'd that count come from? 
So Facebook used to have this trending box oh, on the yeah. right, and it would yeah. say how many people are talking and you could just press on it and you could scroll through like sample comments. Yeah. It said like, and I have it screenshotted somewhere, but it said like 3.1 million people are talking about this. And I scrolled through the comments and it was like almost exclusively like people shaming me. Yeah. But did you have pro positive press at the same time? Was, was there praise, other than your own team, were there a lot of praise coming in too? There was some, yeah. There, like there was kind of like this initial flash of like, ah, you know, like yeah. two minute, like, you know, dip in and out. This is what happened. Yeah. And then there was like this kind of counter narrative that a lot of people started trying to get going like Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. And then the New York Times stepped in and they did a long story that ended up being the most read business story, I think, of that year. Wow. Or at least most time on site or something. They had yeah. some metric at the time and they sent me like some email letting me know. Nice. And so that story was kind of like, in fact, Rush Limbaugh highlighted that story because he felt like it kind of came down on his side. And it highlighted like the difficulty because we had two employees that quit out of protest and spoke out publicly against us. Mm -hmm. And we had just all these other things that were happening that were challenges. And so, you know, it was just, it was like, there was like the flash part was positive where everyone's like, ah, but then yeah. all the like depth stuff was mostly negative. If yeah. that Sense. No, that does. And so how long did that last before it was like, because obviously you guys are still here. It's been five years since you're doing all right. I'm sure there's challenges like any other business and a COVID environment, et cetera. But how long did before it was like, you know, it went from crazy experiment to this worked kind of thing? I mean, there were always like glimmers of that, but, and I don't know if I want to pick an exact point right now, yeah. but what I'll say is five and a half years later, here's the proof of, for people wondering if it worked. So we went from having zero to two babies born per year, every year at the company. We never had less than zero, obviously, but we never had more than two. And in the last five and a half years, we've had 55 babies born or announced. We had between doubling and tripling of people saving for retirement. We had 70% of the company report that they had paid down debt. And we had, you know, an explosion of first time home ownership, like close to 10x what it was previously. Yeah. And those are like statistics, but those are statistics that prove out like the individual anecdotes that I was seeing of One like statistics that no CEO monitors and probably should. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I had two two guys tell me that they lost a hundred pounds afterwards. Yeah, they took control of their life mm -hmm. in a way that they really couldn't when they were like you know so tight on money. I had a woman say she moved out of an apartment with such a terrible landlord she hadn't had running water for two weeks. Jesus. I had a woman tell me that she took her, she's a single mom and she took her son to Disneyland. And how, was, how big was your team in 15? How many people? We were 120 people. Yeah, it's a real, real jump. Yeah. So, and then also, you know, our processing volume has tripled since then. My next question. So your company has tripled in five years. After yeah. I think my greatest regret from the whole thing though, is yeah. just that like, people have this impression of us. It's not really true that we're like an employee centric company. Mm -hmm. We're, we're centric on sticking up for like the American dream, sticking up for the little guy. And like, basically what we care about is all these monopolies that I mentioned before, you know, yeah. basically taxing small businesses, yeah. trying to provide some type of accountability mechanism, which we think not only makes our customers so much better off with us, but also provides at least some check on their behavior, even for the customers that aren't with us. And so without really having the kind of like, you know, big, like 
muscle of like these billions of dollars that these other payments firms have had over the period of time that we've been in business, we've been able to attract and keep 20,000 small businesses generating, you know, $12 billion in payment processing. And we've been able to support this experience. And so like having that ability to like just help those small businesses and be like a counter of like taking advantage of people just because you can. Yeah. That's what we're all about. And so, you know, like the idea of 70K was not really to have people think that we pay well. It was more to have people not think about pay and yeah. just be able to focus on that mission. And I think that the numbers prove that that actually happened, even though maybe we think about it slightly more than we used to. Sure. But, and, but tripling your business at your scale over the course of five years, is a, that's a big win. And so, you know, most businesses would aspire for that. There's very few that can achieve that. Now talking about bootstrapped and not funded and growing like that is even better. And now again, cutting your profitability to share it with your employees so that you didn't have that to reinvest necessarily, that was reinvesting and you, yeah. you created a lot of loyalty. So it's, it's no, it's a, you've been a Harvard case study now, right? Yeah, Rush Limbaugh's <laughs> prophecy came half true. We're, we're a Harvard <laughs> case study, a very popular one. It spread all over the world. Just today, I got a message from somebody in Nigeria saying that they were studying about gravity and like wanted to ask me some questions and stuff. And you know, like that happens multiple times every day, most of the time. And so it's, it's a successful case study, but I think the real proof beyond what I've mentioned also is that when COVID hit, this time we lost 55% of our revenue. And mm -hmm. we had been planning on 20% and you know, different than a business that has like quick like revenue that you can add, a recurring revenue business is super hard to grow. It takes a long time and it's really hard to figure that out. And so all of a sudden, instead of having seven months like 2008, we were planning for a 2008 type event, but we had like three months. Mm -hmm. So our employees came together and decided to voluntarily cut their pay and undo a lot of those pay raises. On average, they volunteered about 30% but wow. some asked to cut their pay 100%, some asked 50. And then, you know, what our business is all about today is all these software products that basically enable small businesses to keep up with large businesses. Yep. And the big company in that world that people are familiar with, our competitor is Stripe. Wow. We're basically like, as a software company, you don't want to have a whole set of payments engineers in addition to all the engineers that are like working on your core product. And yep. so we aggregate all of that work for all of those software companies, but we align ourselves with software companies that aren't trying to become billionaires off the backs of small businesses, but are actually trying to help. And so the way that fits into this story is we, you know, we had been adding maybe like two or three or four of those products, like kind of per year mm -hmm. on that journey. And we added like 25 in two or three months. And our employees like just went, you know, really like to a level that I felt like was not even possible in terms of like getting all those into the, the hands of small businesses. I'll give you a couple examples. Like we have a partner that we decided to work with called Joe Coffee. Yep. And Joe Coffee has an app where basically a coffee shop can order ahead like Starbucks from a mom and pop coffee shop. Oh, cool. And when they installed that, the coffee shops that installed it didn't lose any revenue because of COVID, even though we're the ones that didn't lost 50 to 70% of their revenue across wow. our Wow, yeah. because people still wanted their coffee and were willing to go pick it up. Yeah, I, I saw that. I don't drink coffee, but my wife was at Pete's across the street like every day picking something yeah. up. And then we, you know, for veterinarians, we had a, a program where basically we moved the front desk out to the car where you text to pay, you text all the back and forth. There's like video chat, but then like you text out, they pay the invoice 
and then they bring out the animal. And so that whole front desk experience, we just moved it to the car to allow for social distancing. You know, we had a team of like 10 people that were like, we're just going to help any customers that need to get a PPP loan. And like, we just dug in, that team just dug in and learned everything they could about PPP loans. And then we just said, for any of our customers for free, we'll help you get a bank. So we were transitioning people from larger banks that were really doing a terrible job to smaller banks that were doing a better job. Hiring Wells Fargo as we speak. (laughs) Yes. Good, good move. And so, you know, we had so many of those things. One guy was like, hey, Uber Eats is killing our restaurants. So he was like, okay, he, he designed and kind of like cobbled together like an online order system. But then he's like, but there's no driver. So he's like, I want to save this one company. He called it Drivery. But he started like a Skunk Works Uber Eats inside of Gravity called Drivery. And he was delivering by himself for free every weekend (laughs) and charging the restaurants nothing just to keep them open. Wow. And so, you know, you started to see all this happening and like, you know, we're still well below our pre-COVID, you know, numbers and we will be for a long time. But, you know, we've been able to restabilize. I was able to cancel all of those pay cuts kind of unilaterally, tell people you can't do it anymore. And, you know, we're we're not out of the water, but like I, I defy anybody to like come up with a story like that in a company that would have not paid 70k or would have laid people off either in 2008 or in 2020 you know i think i think actually i think the people at gravity are amazing people but the more i meet people out there like i just feel like actually most people would do this if it weren't for the companies being so evil demotivating stealing all the motivation and passion away from the employees yeah i think people like being a team player, people like risk and sacrifice, but it's got to be for something they believe in. And in 2020, you know, with an unprecedented concentration of wealth and power, it's really hard to believe in the big companies. And then all of us smaller companies are basically told that we have to conform to the norms of all those big companies. Otherwise, we won't be able to survive. And so we have a situation where we're kind of like eating ourselves in terms of having a functioning society. Yeah. And our employees are proof that, you know, just like all this like terrible, horrible stuff that can spread, you know, maybe some goodness can spread, but it's probably honestly has to be at a political or systemic level. Yeah. Because the pressure that you and I are under every day to behave badly is so high and the incentive to behave in a good way is so low that I just, like you said, I don't think most people are going to do it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, it has, and that's where, I mean, you've been very vocal about a lot of things, including sort of a, what do they call it? Minimum basic income. Yeah, like, universal basic income. Universal basic, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's a ton of argument for it. And somehow, I mean, again, I love that there's there's it gets politicized, but there's a lot of argument and the idea of like, trickle down economics, like if you look at any data, it doesn't exist. And I'm saying this as someone that grew up, frankly, you know, a successful dad, and I grew up around a lot of success. If my dad made more money, yeah, and they'd pay some bonuses, but most of that money went in his pocket. Like, that's just how that works. And then the argument goes, oh, well, they spend it on things. No, they don't. They save it, they invest it, they make more. It's not how that actually works. Like the reality check, I get theories are great, but this is what happens in reality. And trickle up economics which doesn't ever get talked about is absolutely a thing because what does get talked about is the fact that people that in the lower and middle class spend 110% of their income. So if you increase that income, you get a 
10% multiplier on just their own spending because of loans and financing and all that. So there's a benefit as a society to making sure that people, more people do what you're doing. So it's awesome. So we're getting close to wrapping up here. I have two questions for you. One is I want to know what's next, what's in the future, what you're doing. And then one piece of advice you have for the next person pursuing their dreams and maybe running against the grain here. Yeah. So what's next? I have a book that I was planning on doing like a full book tour during COVID, but I ended up canceling it because of like, just like working so hard to recover from being down 55%. But I still released the book just quietly. It's called Worth It. And so, you know, that is a part of a larger kind of strategy that I'm pursuing which is to try to get this message out there at every level, at the individual level of like individual choice, can work at a different company, can choose not to work for Amazon anymore or somebody like that. And then at a company level, you know, leaders and companies and conversations can happen where we can agree that it's better if we flatten the pay scale instead of having it be so high and so low, let's have it be more compressed, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's been during the most successful times in our history and companies can do that. And you know, it's a shame that we haven't had more follow suit, but we have had a couple dozen small companies follow suit. And then from a policy standpoint, like UBI, like you mentioned, you know, if you say a family with two adults, a UBI for them would do basically what the Gravity 70K did for a family with two adults under gravity scenario. So we have proof that it works. We have proof that everybody's life is better. And if people are thinking about like law and order or any of those things, the number one way you can attack those is if you attack poverty, then you know, crime and vagrancy goes down automatically. And by the way, it's cheaper than locking people up or trying to get more law enforcement out there or more military enforcement out there. So, you know, I'm just like basically like screaming from the top of the roof about all these things. And I'm shocked that it's not taking off and really disturbed, but I am just going to keep screaming it because it helps me to feel better about the situation to feel like I'm doing everything that I can think of and like busting, you know, everything I have to like try to make that happen. So that's what's next. And then one piece of advice, don't follow what other people do. Look in your heart, look in your conscience. And if anything, try to go against the grain. One way you can do that, be really honest. Be honest with your customers. Be honest with your employees. We came out and we just told our customers, we think our industry is terrible. We think our competitors are terrible. And by the way, we also think we're terrible because it's the structure of the industry, but we're trying to be half as terrible. We're not even good even now after me like spending 18 years building this company. We're still pretty terrible, but we try to get, we try to suck less every day. And so we're just totally honest with our customers, even when it flies in the face of marketing. You know, these small businesses deserve honesty. They really don't deserve to have marketing spin. And the same thing with employees, you know, way before 70K, we were out there telling employees, we pay like crap, it's not good enough. And yeah, maybe it's in line with market rates, but the market rates are crap and we need to find find a way to turn that on its head and shift that. And so that level of like honesty. So maybe if people out there have an intention to pay 70K or to stick up for the little gal guy person, you know, and shout out to any non-binary listeners like you all are just as important to me as everybody else. So, and I don't never mean to leave you out with my language. So, you know, it's like one of those things where you like by acknowledging the problem, acknowledging reality, having that goal, your team is so much smarter than you are collectively. Yep. You know, maybe, maybe you're more experienced than one person on your team, but your team as a whole is so much smarter than you are. Give the problem 
to the whole team to solve. Be honest about it. And then build a business that has the intention of doing good, fixing these societal problems. And then ask your elected officials and vote accordingly to hold us accountable, hold businesses accountable. Because the level of you know, kind of stripping of consumer protections, protections for everyday Americans out there, the way that's been just kind of torched and the way the courts have been torched since the 1980s, it's gonna kill all of us. It really will. And so it's not good enough anymore just to be a good company. You have to go out there and really, you know, ask for accountability so that they can't keep rigging the game where only the bad actors win and the good actors lose. So that would be my main piece of advice. Yeah, yeah no, and it's, I think it's good advice. It's stand for something bigger than just building a company too. Like change the world. It, it sounds like a big statement, but you're doing it and a lot of people can learn from it. So Dan, thank you for being on Hawk Talk. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Eric, thank you for being my friend and thanks for having me on. No, thank you. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.